Amen. Thank you, Todd. Good morning, everyone. Kids, you are dismissed for Gospel Project. Hope you have a great time. Austin, are you like 12 feet tall? If uh, you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 145. We're going to be in two, two texts today. I'm going to ask you to turn to both of them, if you would. Great to be back with you today. Um, thank you, Don, for preaching last week. Did a great job, didn't he? Encouraged us in the Word, yeah. Um, my father uh, retired from full-time vocational ministry last Sunday after 42 years of doing this and 25 years at the particular church he was at. So we were there with them celebrating their retirement. Most of what I know I learned from him, so I'm grateful for his ministry over a long uh, course of time. So thank you for the uh, time to be away and to enjoy that with my family back in Oklahoma. We're starting a new series today. In just a moment, we'll read from Psalm 145 together, but a couple of comments to set it up for us. One of the most famous books on the character of God contains these words. It says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me read that again and just let it sink in. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Far more important than whether you are single or married, old or young, Asian, Caucasian, or something else, wealthy or poor, skinny or well-rounded. The most principal thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And the most important thing about us as a church is what we think about when we think about God. We saw this truth on display in the series of going through the book of Habakkuk together, didn't we? In the beginning, this mature man of God was troubled because what he believed about God he wasn't seeing played out in his circumstances. But towards the end of the book, we found Habakkuk transformed because he began to see God more fully as God actually is. So we've decided to move into a brief series in which we're going to consider some of God's attributes so that hopefully we'll have the same experience that Habakkuk had. Whether you're here today as a longtime Christian or whether you're just considering the claims of Christ, perhaps for the very first time in your life, what you and I most need is to see God as He actually is. To take in God's Word and to discover more of what it says about Him. So today we're starting a series we're just calling the four G's, uh, referring to four ideas about God that come from the Scriptures. First, God is great. Second, God is glorious. Third, God is good. And fourth, God is gracious. Each a week, in the coming four weeks, we will unpack one of these ideas and consider how not only knowing it, but believing it can transform the way we think about God. This uh, terminology isn't uh, new, isn't uh, original to us. It comes from 
Tim Chester's book called You Can Change. It's excellent. I would commend it to you. Our uh, Disciple Makers classes go through it, so many of you have read it. But he puts it this way. He says uh, that God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And last, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Knowing these four truths about God and even committing them to memory could become a great tool for you personally to speak the gospel to yourself in the everyday stuff of life, reminding yourself of the truth of who God is. Of course, the Scriptures tell us a whole lot more about God, but these are a good brief summary. Now, just a a brief comment about Chester's larger point. Perhaps that would be helpful to us. In this chapter in You Can Change, uh, Tim's argument is essentially this, that when we as Christians sin, when we fall to temptation, when we doubt, when we struggle, when we fear, when we worry, that ultimately it is because in that moment we are disbelieving something that God has said is true about Himself. That either we just are forgetting something we already know, or we haven't actually learned it in the first place. And that sin comes from a failure to believe what God has said is true about Himself. Another way to say that is that there is, for many of us, a gap between confessional belief and functional belief. In other words, confessional belief is what we say with our mouths we believe about God. So, as we sung together today, many of us confessed things that we would say or sing that we believe. And many of the things we'll read together from the Scriptures today we sung. And we've confessed together this morning that we believe them. But at a deeper level, there's what we might call functional belief. It's the stuff we actually live out in everyday life. Confessional belief is what we say with our minds, through our mouths, I believe this. But foundational beliefs are what we actually reveal in everyday life that our heart believes. And there's a gap between the two. That gap is what the rest of your life is about. That gap is what spiritual growth is about. As God brings us into closer and closer conformity with what our minds say we believe, but our hearts reveal we're still struggling to believe. Does that make sense? And so, simply what we want to do in this series is say, God, show us the gap. More importantly, show us who you are that we might take a step closer to believing what is actually true about you. Spiritual growth in a very real sense, again, is God just lessening that gap. So let's read from Psalm 145 where we can see all four of these four Gs. And Nancy is going to come read for us. Nancy, I've grown to really appreciate and respect. She's also a Dawn's wife who preached last week. So hopefully for those of you who are new, we're putting some faces with names. Where is? 
Thanks, Dad. Perfect. Here we go. Psalm 145, 1 through 9, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Amen. Thank you, Nancy. You got some little pitter-patter clappings. I'm not sure why, but you did crush it. So, great job. Did you see those, all four there? This is one text in which um, each one of those uh, four Gs that we'll be covering um, is seen. Perhaps it'd be a great one to, uh, to write down somewhere and work on uh, learning. There are some cards available when you leave in the, the lobby that look like this. Perhaps you got one on Easter, but it outlines each of these that we'll be talking about. So to, to start the process of us learning these together, would you repeat them with me? Let's just say them out loud together. So first, God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And God is gracious. Awesome. Thank you. Today, we just want to consider the first truth, that God is great. We can see that in many places in the Bible, but perhaps nowhere clearer than in the book of Isaiah in chapter 40. So would you turn there to this text with me, and the rest of our morning we'll spend together in Isaiah 40. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you, and we'll be on page 410 in those chair Bibles. Page 410 in those chair Bibles. Uh, before we jump into this text, give me just two or three minutes, maybe four, to uh, try to briefly uh, give you the setting of when this text was originally recorded so that we can understand it first in its context. Um, Isaiah was a prophet to Israel in the latter half of the 8th century B.C. or B.C.E. In the book bearing his name, is one of the long prophetic books of the Bible. It contains uh, many of the most famous prophecies about Jesus that are recorded in the New Testament. It's probably what makes Isaiah the most well-known. It's a difficult book, uh, but it's an incredibly beautiful book. Now, we're going to plop down right smack in the middle. And so what have we missed? Well, in the first 39 chapters, here's essentially what's happened. Um, Isaiah has said, 
Israel, you've been unfaithful to God. You have broken covenant. And because of that, you're going to be taken into exile. And so Israel, you're going to go out of Israel into a foreign land where you'll be ruled by a harsh, wicked people. And at the end of verse 39, uh, chapter 39 in particular, the people are told, you're going to be exiled by Babylon. Now, if you've been ar around with us lately, uh, that will sound familiar to you because we've covered that topic from the book of Habakkuk. Wow, this is amazing. Great job. So we covered that same set of times. So Isaiah is looking forward, telling the people, this is going to happen to you, just like Habakkuk was doing. And now in chapter 40, as we turn that page from 39 to 40, we find something different though. We find Isaiah telling the people, you're not going to be exiled forever. God's going to welcome you back into the land, and here's what it's going to be like. And so it's a little confusing because he's saying you're going to be exiled, but the exile is not going to last forever. You're going to be welcomed back in. And for us, we're looking back on all of that having already happened. So um, I've had some vertigo lately. Do you, do you feel a little bit? It's a, that's a lot to process. Isaiah's looking ahead, but he's saying... You can look ahead to be coming back from what's going to happen. And now today we're looking back on all of that. If you're not confused, then you're better than I am. But in Isaiah chapter 40, we're given an incredible message of hope that God will intervene, is what he was telling the Israelites. God will bring you back home. Isaiah 40 is a word of hope for a discouraged, defeated, demoralized people. If you are any of those things today, then I hope and pray that this text will encourage you. Let's read its two sections together. Um, I'll just start in verse 1. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord hands double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the word or the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain shall be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I say, well, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but... The word of our Lord stands forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. 
Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. These first 11 verses are beautiful good news to Israel that exile wouldn't be forever, that the message of comfort and encouragement had come, that the terrible hardship Israel was facing would soon come to an end. And friends, if we bring that into our day, the terrible hardship you may be facing or the one coming up that you don't even know about yet will not last forever. For the people of God, all hardships will soon come to an end. That's great news, isn't it? In light of eternity, our present problems, whatever they might be, are light, momentary afflictions. Brothers and sisters, this text boldly declares that God will reveal His glory, that God will keep His word, that God will shepherd His people. And so for Israel, the, the horrors of being drug away from your homeland and then assimilated into a culture where literally everything was hostile to the way of life you were normally living, and that in particular being outside of the blessings of God, this text says it's going to come to an end. You will be restored. And as history has proven true, God keeps His Word. If you look at these verses closely, though, you'll notice that Isaiah declares not simply that God will send His blessings. Oh, no. Read it closely. God simply doesn't send His blessings. He brings them. Did you catch that? See, God's not simply saying, I will send good things your way but I'll come myself. I'll bring them in my own hands. Verse 10, he says, I will come with might. Verse 11, I will tend you as a shepherd and carry you gently as my people. Pulling that into today, Christians, has he not done this for us? 2,500 years ago is when God returned the people to Israel. And so for 2,500 years, this is what God has been doing. God has been sending Himself, bringing His blessings. Faithfully bringing us not merely into a physical land of Israel, but into what that text always was pointing forward to, into the people of God being part of His kingdom forever. But maybe there are some here today who have believed the Bible, have counted on God, and yet what this text seems to promise doesn't feel as though it's come true in your own particular experience. It doesn't feel like God has cared for you. It doesn't seem as though if you look on your circumstances, 
that God has given you blessings. It feels more like curses. Perhaps life is filled with troubles, not with triumphs. If that has been your story lately, then perhaps you are filled with doubt today about God because it seems as though God has not come through. Now, this is rhetorical. You don't have to actually do it. But would you say, that's me? I, I hear these words. I confess them as we sang. But actually in here, I don't really believe it. If so, this text raises questions. Questions like, does God really have the power to deliver us? Is God actually trustworthy? Is God bigger than our problems, and does He even have the will to help us? You aren't the first person to have asked those questions. The Israelites, as they heard this text, asked those questions. And so the rest of this chapter, this beautiful chapter, is simply in the Bible to answer those questions. Isn't that cool? The rest of the chapter will answer these questions by proclaiming that God is a great God. And doing it in particular by saying, God is the great creator, so you can trust Him. And second, God is the holy ruler, so you can follow Him. All I want to do the rest of our time together is show you that from this passage. I wonder if we could pray again and ask God to speak. Father, I, I feel a particular weight as we read this passage together. Father, some of us have significant doubts. about your willingness to follow through. Some of us have significant doubts about your greatness. and Some of us have simply never come to believe in the first place. And of all the places in the Bible that your greatness is so wonderfully exclaimed, this text we're about to read does so, so incredibly, beautifully, and powerfully. And so we would say to you, God, we believe, but help our unbelief. And Father, my words are powerless to invoke real change. Only your Spirit can do that. And so Father, today, perhaps in fresh, powerful, new ways, would you use your word to give life and encouragement? We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? 
Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom does he consult? Who has made him understand? Who has taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him? An idol? A craftsman cast it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it as the silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks a craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spread them like a tent to dwell in who makes princes as nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted and scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is discarded by God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now watch this. The one who doesn't grow faint or grow weary. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. What a tremendous passage of Scripture. I'm tempted to just read it again. So incredibly powerful. Christians, God has promised us not merely a return from exile in Babylon. But as this text gets quoted and alluded to throughout the rest of the Bible, He's promised us deliverance out of the bondage of sin an end to separation from Him, adoption into His family, a place in His kingdom forever. He's promised us that nothing would befall us 
except what He will use to make us more like Christ. He's promised us Himself. Now, is God able to keep these promises? Isaiah's answer is most certainly yes. Of course He's able. He's the Creator. He's the Sovereign Sustainer. He is the Holy Ruler. Now, there is so much in this text, but our time is so short. So what I'd like to do is simply shine light on a few verses out of all of these that we've read to give us a sense of the whole. So look again at verse 12. We're just going to zoom in, glance at a few verses, zoom back out to try to get a sense of the whole. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens with a span? Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Do you see the images? There's four of them, and they're astonishing. Four human measurements are used to give us a sense of the vastness of God. One is the hollow of a hand. Simply that. The second is the span of God's hand. So the distance from pinky to thumb. Fourth, it's, it's not easy to see in the English, but it's, it's referring to a basket. Like a basket that you would carry lunch in. And then fourth, a, a scale. So four human measurements used to describe God in relationship to what He has made. God says He measures the waters of the world in the hollow of His hand. Oh my gosh! But the next one is even more powerful. The, the span of the heavens is simply from God's pinky to his thumb. It says God's enclosed all the lands of the world in a basket that he can pick up. And then the great mountains of the world can fit on a tiny scale. Now we think today of scales as those things we dreadfully stand on. The ancient world would not have known that. They used little scales to weigh small things on. Like today, if you buy a wedding ring, that carrot is going to be measured on a little scale. God says the entire landmass of the mountains are but a tiny little scale to him. Wow, this is a great God. This Creator has unparalleled power. He spoke words. And all of that happened. And He can hold all the water of the world in the palm of His hand. 
and you worry. The palm of his hand. It turns out that dumb little song is actually true. He's got the whole world. Wow! Yes! Yes! <laughs> That's perfect. This verse, if you look at it closely, gives us entirety by contrast. So it says, water and dust. It says, heavens and earth. So in totality, everything that God has created is tiny before Him. God is totally unique, unparalleled in power. Look at the creation in its vastness, this text wanting us to say. God is great. Of course He has. And will faithfully bring us into His kingdom just fine. Now, but that's just physical stuff, right? It's just matter. God's over what He's made, clearly tells us. But is He able to keep His promises when evil presses itself against what He has made? Well, look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are as accounted as the dust on the scales. Friends, all the world's greatest powers in all of history combined are but a boop, a tiny little drop in a bucket. All the nations are but a drop in a bucket. No nation, however powerful they might be, is anything before the powers of God. If you watch the news, many Americans right now seem to be very stressed about North Korea. North Korea is a, a big, bad, wicked nation. At least the ruler is. And there's lots of stress about the pros prospects of nuclear North Korea. Boop. Nothing. Now, to bring it closer to home, at least for those of us who are American citizens, we have the great problem of living in the great superpower of the world. And so, we are predisposed to a prideful arrogance over every other nation. If you've read any history at all, you know Every great nation comes to an end. There is none that go on forever. 
I don't know when this one will, but it will. So praise God that America is but a boop. Right? God's bigger. God's great. So don't stress about North Korea. Don't stress about Trump. God is bigger. Now one more, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see. So, in other words, look up at the heavens, the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by his name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is fabulous. Do you see what it's saying? It's estimated now that there are some 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. There are some 125 billion galaxies in this universe alone. So that comes to approximately 10 billion trillion stars in this galaxy, in this universe. I worked hard on that and I butchered it up. <laughs> Dang it. Let me read it again. There are some 125 billion galaxies in this universe. All of that containing approximately 10 billion trillion stars. And what does Isaiah say? He says that God calls them out by name. Just sit in that for a moment. Ten billion trillion stars in this universe called out by name. And you're worried about finals this week. And if you'll have money for rent. And what the doctor's going to say. And the God who loves you calls out 10 billion trillion stars by name. You see, friend, this text tells us that God himself oversees, manages, cares for, and sustains the entire cosmos. But he tells you that in order to tell you this. He cares for you. 
the end of this chapter especially shows that the same God who calls out all these stars also knows our name. And when, when we're exhausted from the difficulties of life, He gives Himself for our need. So wait for Him. When you are at your weakest, God will exchange your weakness for His power. That's what He does. When we grow faint, we count on the one who never does. When we grow weary, we count on the one who never has. See, God is great. And so, let the words of Isaiah lift an enormous weight off your shoulders. God is great, so you do not have to live as though you are in control because He is. He is. Christians, when we trust in God's greatness, we increasingly no longer even feel the need to be in control. God's in control. So through His Word, in prayer, with our brothers and sisters, we can climb up in our Heavenly Father's lap and simply let Him hold us and take care of us. If the faithful among Israel came to see these truths, how much more should we, this side of the cross? You see, the, the shepherd talked about in Isaiah 40 speaks in John. His name's Jesus. John 10, verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We have much greater clarity because of where we have fallen in the providence of God through the course of history. Because this text looked forward, but we look back. And we should have no, absolutely no doubt that what Isaiah has said is true because Christ has come and Christ gave his life and he is the good shepherd. You don't say much, but this is a moment to say something. Dre. This is great news. Our shepherd is in control. He laid down his life for his sheep. But he rose again. He's ruling and reigning. If you're here today and you've not trusted Christ for your salvation, would you understand what Jesus claims for himself? Jesus says from, from John, so much later in the story, Jesus says, I'm the one speaking in Isaiah 40. I'm the one who created and sustains. I am the shepherd who gave my life. I rose again. 
That's what we call the gospel. The great news that Jesus left heaven, came to earth, added humanity, flesh and bone, to his deity, lived a perfect life of obedience in order to die a sacrificial death in your place and then rose again demonstrating the sacrifice was acceptable to the Father, that sin, death, and the devil couldn't keep him. And now he invites all who would believe to come to him for salvation, to be saved, to have him as your shepherd. So I would quite simply ask, if you are here today and have not trusted Christ for your salvation, what more do you possibly need? Do do you believe the words that we've spoken today? If so, then that means God is already intervening in your life. So won't you turn from sin and turn to Him? There are hundreds of people in the room that would love if you would nudge them and say, when we're done, in just a moment, would you tell me more? That would be our great delight. Friends, God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this enormously wonderful news that all our stressing, worrying, fretting, all our consternation to the point even of ulcers, sleepless nights, anxiety, all of it is 100% unnecessary. For you are great. I pray for my brothers and sisters who I love so much and yet you love infinitely more that they would be persuaded today to believe truly that you are a great God and that the same God who but from pinky to thumb stretched out the heavens cares and knows and is present today. I pray also, Lord, for people who have yet to place faith in Christ, that, Father, you would enable repentance and belief. For this is an urgent need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.